Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. It's great to be here, as always. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. I'd like to wish everybody out there, the men and the husbands and future fathers, uh, happy Father's Day this morning. God loves godly men, right? Godly fathers and soon-to-be fathers or this message is really primarily dealing with the issues of the issue of Father's Day today. 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, which reads, In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was near death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face towards the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully with an undivided heart and have done what is good in your sight. And the Bible goes on to say that Hezekiah wept bitterly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just approach the throne of grace this morning through the precious, holy, righteous blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask you today that you just give us a fresh infilling of your Spirit. Give us ears to hear. Open our hearts so we may be able to hear what it is that you would speak to us this morning. Remove any hindrances that would keep us, Lord, from being able to uh, see you preached in your word. Lord, we pray that you would receive all the glory this morning. From the songs that we sing and from the words that are preached. And the way that we gather together as the family of God, that we are here, Lord Jesus, for one purpose, and that is to worship your holy name. Lord, we come with a heart of gratitude that we even have this opportunity. Lord, we're not entitled to this. We don't deserve this. This is a grace that you give us the body of Christ. Lord, thank you for giving each and every one of us your holy word. That we have a copy of your word when so many around the world don't even have a page of scripture. Lord, let us be humbled this morning. Just in this simple reality that we can come together and that we can worship together in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of uh, this morning's message is Set Your House in Order. Set Your House in Order. These words were not only spoken to Hezekiah, but also echoed by the Apostle Paul in a letter to Timothy concerning the man of God in relation to his home and his family. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must be one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, or as the King James Version puts it, with all gravity, or with all seriousness. 
other words, the man of God must have his house in order. My goal this morning is to address the fathers and future fathers of our congregation with this very same message. A a message which had very serious implications to Hezekiah and has very serious implications to us as well. Set your house in order. It really was a message of death unto life, which came actually in two stages. First is, listen, you're going to die. And number two, you will not die. But the central theme to both outcomes is this, is that we need to get our house in order. The question to be answered today by all of us is when our time comes to depart from this world, will we have our house in order? Our birth date can be estimated almost down to the wire, but not our death date. The minute, day, and hour of our death is unknown to man, but known to God. In Job 14, 5, it says, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and and set limits he cannot exceed. The question isn't only, will our house be set in order? The question this morning is, is your house in order now? Not according to your way, but according to God's way. And why should we examine the life of Hezekiah for Father's Day? Why would this be uh, someone we'd want to look at? Well, for number one, first of all, Hezekiah was a man who truly lived and loved God. Whether we are speaking of fathers, husbands, single men, any man that is here this morning must understand that if we are to have any impact upon our homes, and the lives of those that we are closest to, we must go down in history as Hezekiah did, as a man whom the Bible says was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. Hezekiah's actually name, his name means whom Jehovah has strengthened. Hezekiah was one of the few kings of Judah who constantly was aware of God's acts in the past and his involvement in the events of every day. The Bible describes Hezekiah as a king who had a close relationship with God. 2 Kings chapter 18 describes Hezekiah. It says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following the Lord, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and he prospered him wherever he went. Can this be said about you this morning, fathers and Men in this church, 
Hezekiah had a wicked father, by the way. His name was King Ahaz. Whose destructive practices such as idol worship and sacrilege against the temple of the Lord actually contributed to the downfall of the kingdom of Judah, which the Lord brought about in 586 B.C. After Ahaz's wicked reign, there was much work to do, and Hezekiah boldly cleaned house. He crushed the pagan altars, the idols, and their temples were destroyed. The bronze serpent that Moses had made in the desert was also crushed and destroyed because the people had made it an idol. The temple in Jerusalem, whose doors had been nailed shut by Hezekiah's own father, was cleaned out and reopened. The Levitical priesthood was reinstated and the Passover was reinstituted as a national holiday. Under Hezekiah's reforms, revival came to Judah. Why does all this matter for us today as fathers and men in this church today? What, what kind of significance does this have? Because this is the life that God expects us to live as well. We should be bringing that element and that atmosphere wherever we go, but especially, right, into our homes, into our families, into our marriages, into our children's lives. We all know the tragic circumstances when these things don't happen, right, in the home or in your marriages or it's rebelled against in the church. Complete and absolute devastation is the result of this kind of behavior. Because King Hezekiah put God first in everything he did, the Bible says that the Lord was with him and he prospered him wherever he went. Hezekiah held fast to the Lord and did not stop, did not stop following him. And the Lord caused him to be successful in whatever he undertook. But then we must recognize something happens here. A change in the story occurs. But a sudden and unexpected report comes to Hezekiah during a deathly fit of sickness. Which we read in 2 Kings chapter 21 and 2 says, In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was near death. The Bible says that Hezekiah, he actually, if you look at the word, it says that he became ill. <clears throat> Apparently there was a cause to his illness, which the Bible says in those days. And most commentators believe that what caused this illness coming into Hezekiah's life first was a reality of a vile, wicked father that worshipped idols, that literally wreaked havoc upon the kingdom, rebelled against God. Imagine that. Imagine having a dad who completely rebels against the living God, who lives in such a fashion that he's hated by God and brings devastation upon you being his representative, his son. This is what Hezekiah was living under. But what created, what most commentators believe, his illness was the Assyrian invasion upon the land due to the disrespect that God was given. So we see here that it says that 
he became ill and was near death. When? In those days. What days? When they were invaded by God's enemies. I don't think we can quite grasp the whole reality of what's happening here because we really need to understand who Hezekiah was. <clears throat> he was a man after God's own heart. We read his biography, his brief biography, that he was one who followed hard after God, who clung to God, who held fast to God, and God prospered him in all of his ways. This was the reality of what his life looked like when he followed hard after God, that God blessed him. But now he lay there and he was sick unto death. How do we grapple with this? Because in today's world, in American evangelicalism, this would really indicate that the man was in sin. But he wasn't. He was following hard after God, and now he is dying. What a crazy turn of events. <clears throat> we must always remember as well that tragic circumstances and trauma induce situations that can be extremely taxing on the mind and the body. And at certain times, even death can be a welcome friend amidst unbearable sickness. I mean, it said that he was sick unto death. He was dying. I mean, that's how bad his illness was. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment and think of yourself in those moments. And he's, you know, when you're sick unto death, you're not walking around, you got a mild little fever or something, you just don't feel good or whatever. He was, he was dying. This was an illness that many believe could have been cancer. No one really knows. That's pure speculation. But the reality was, whatever he had, it literally was bringing him to the brink of death. And you can almost imagine the reality of what's going on in his mind, knowing that you know, God was certainly with him, and God was with him then. I like what Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, says. A Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all of his sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his temptations, his vexations, his oppressions, his persecutions. He knows that death, <clears throat> that death shall be the resurrection of all of his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, and his contentments. This is a reality of the Christian and the godly man's death. But like adding insult to injury, as if being deathly ill wasn't enough, Isaiah, out of all people, like Isaiah is so heroic, right? We all love and appreciate Isaiah and his ministry. We've all read about him. Imagine Isaiah coming to visit you in your sickbed. You're probably thinking in your mind, great, he's got some, something to tell me, or this could be very beneficial because he's a prophet from God and he knew God. But what else happens is quite different. Isaiah walked up to him as he's literally laying there dying. And what does he tell him? Say, hey, Hezekiah, you're going to get better. Just believe. Just have faith. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you better get your house in order. You better get your house in order. Well, what are you saying, God? No, God is actually reaffirming this reality. You're going to die. You're going to die. As a matter of fact, you shall die and not live. Just so you know, just so we're clear, you're not going to be healed from this. You're not walking away from this one. These are the words of the Lord. 
coming to him. God is saying to him through the prophet Isaiah that you are going to die. As you're laying there already, who knows what's going on through his mind with all this trauma already of knowing you're going to die. I mean, I don't think death is fun for anybody, regardless of who you are. He's right there on his sickbed, and Isaiah comes in to make matters worse. He says, just by the way, this horrible sickness that you have, it's not going to get better. You're not going to live. You're going to die. Almost sounds like what Job called those who were supposed to support him and bring him comfort in his day, but instead they piled on misery. Job called them miserable comforters. Or even his wife, who gave him some encouraging advice by saying, hey, just curse God and die. Nothing motivates a person to act like a death sentence. Nothing awakens a man out of his stupor, his addiction, prides, and selfishness like a death report. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Those are very sobering words. It's a great reality check for all of us this morning. It can be extremely effective in driving someone close to God. It also removes any false motives in ministry and any false motives in worship. Hezekiah was a godly man, and this is probably why it came as such a shock. Many times we can get too confident in our obedience and our faithfulness and think that God owes us something. Well, look at me. I pray and I I live in such a way. I study God's word. I meditate upon God's word. I evangelize. I sing. I preach. I do all these things. And we get so comfortable that in that, we think we're safe. But the reality is, he was going to die. The death sentence had been given. Multitudes of individuals tell their story after what they received from doctors known as the death sentence, the diagnosis of cancer. Many testified to an awakening, a, actually a sense of dread, but a trigger not only to search for a remedy and get help, but making sure their house is in order, their will, their estates, their inheritance, and even their funeral. It's a sobering message indeed, but for Hezekiah, he knew exactly what to do. He had done it his entire life. He turned to God. He turned to God. And this is such a beautiful illustration of the man of God. You know, what is your default? What do you turn to when you get a death sentence or bad news or something comes your way that surprises you or a tragedy strikes What do you turn to? What's your default? Because his default was the Lord. His default was the word of God. Just almost, it almost was a a primary turn for him. It was in his nature to turn towards God. It was something that he had already practiced. I like what uh, Richard Wormbrand said, and, and he is the founder of the Voices of the Martyrs. He said, when he was thrown into a Romanian prison, an underground prison, and he was tortured for 14 years, he said that one of the things that kept him alive is that the way he practiced his Christianity prior to being thrown in the dungeon. He said, nothing much changed except for the torture. 
I fasted, I prayed, I sought the Lord. I lived very, very lean. But he said, you know what? The pastors who died the quickest were the ones that had no idea of how to basically fast and pray and learn how to die yet while they're living. They were the first to go. He turned to God. That was his default. What's your default this morning, brothers and sisters? What do you turn to when you're in pain or something doesn't go your way? Do you grab your phone and go right onto Facebook or right on social media? Do you run to something else to alleviate your pain? What coping mechanism do you use, right, to ease the symptoms of your pain? Don't you think Hezekiah was in pain with that kind of delivery, knowing he's going to die? Knowing that his days are numbered, what did he do? It said very it says very quickly, it didn't it didn't mess around with words. It said he turned to God. The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And in the second verse it says, Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. This should be our reaction. But for all honest, we could say it's not always our reaction, is it? We've all turned to other things. When things go downhill or things go south, haven't we? We're all guilty, but I'm guilty of it. But those things never satisfy, do they? They don't last long. And usually you find the thing that you are looking to bring some kind of ease usually ends up ensnaring later on down the road. These are all faults in the sense of temporarily bringing healing to your pain. I'm not saying there aren't things that God provides for us as believers to help us through painful times. Don't get me wrong. That's what's not being uh, explained here. But what we do see is a, a response to the message of death. I think God gives us here in his word really the the ultimate the ultimate problem and that is you're going to die. Not you're going to fail, not that you're going to lose your marriage, not that your kids are going to die, not that you're going to become poor, your bank account's going to be drained, not you're going to lose your legs or whatever, but you're actually going to die. You're going to die. And with that, he turns to the Lord. Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you faithfully and with an undivided heart and have done what is good in your sight. I like what Matthew Henry says. He says, he whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet into the grave. George Whitfield said, take care of your life and the Lord will take care of your death. We see three reactions from Hezekiah in relation to getting his house in order. Number one, he turned his face toward the wall and he prayed. Put this into your minds this morning. You don't know what the week's going to bring. You don't know what the next hour's going to bring. You may not even be around in the next hour. You may be in eternity the next breath. You don't know. You do not determine 
when you depart from this world, God has a million ways of taking his people out. And most of the time you don't expect it. This is why it's sobering this morning that you get your house in order, that you wake up, get over yourselves, die to yourselves, and look to Christ. Matthew Henry writes, Hezekiah was sick unto death in the same year in which the king of Assyria besieged Jerusalem. A warning to prepare for death was brought to Hezekiah by Isaiah. Prayer is one of the best preparations for death because by it we fetch in strength and grace from God to enable us to finish well. Hezekiah's life, for the most part, was a model of faithfulness and trust in the Lord. His faith was more than superficial, as his bold reforms show. Hezekiah's trust in the Lord was rewarded with answered prayer, successful endeavors, and miraculous victory over his enemies. When faced with an impossible situation, surrounded by the dreadful and determined Assyrian army, Hezekiah did exactly the right thing. He prayed, and God answered. I would say to you this morning, to those of you who are heavy-hearted or downcast, or feel like you have drifted and, and like your life is such a mess and you've sinned so much that there's no way that God would even listen to you anymore, that's not true. That's a lie right from the belly of hell. The Lord hears the cries of his people, no matter what situation you're in. No matter how bad that you've sinned, you have not fallen from grace. You cannot out the grace of God. You have to understand something. God sent his only son to die upon the cross. He laid his son upon the altar and poured out his full wrath upon Christ. He exhausted all of his hatred against sin upon one man in our place. All of the hate, all of the anger, all of the wrath, all of the rage upon one man. And that was Jesus Christ. God looked at Christ when he took revenge against our sin as if it was you hanging on the cross. He saw you when he poured out his rage upon Christ. When he poured out his wrath upon Christ. Put your name right there because that's who he hit. God did not circumnavigate around the cross. He hit it dead center. And you were the target. But it was Christ who represented you on that cross. And the Bible says when he went down into the depths of the grave, he rose from the dead and defeated death, hell, and the grave. And you are bound up in that covenant if you placed your faith in Christ. You are his. You belong to him. You cannot tear yourself out of God's covenant. You can't remove yourself off from the list that you've been placed upon. He cried out. His second point, he said, in verse 3, Please, O Lord, remember me. I've walked before you faithfully and with an undivided heart and done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah thought by you know, reaching out to God and letting him know, God, this is how my life has lived before you, as if God has forgotten that. If he really needs to call God to remembrance. But I do know the scriptures always seem to show, even the life of David and different illustrations, where it shows that the man or the woman of God, even Hannah, reached out, God, remember me, remember me, remember me. I think it satisfies our own lives when we're able to communicate that 
to God, speaking to God, loving God as a father. And then it said, Hezekiah, he wept bitterly. It said he wept bitterly. And these weren't crocodile tears, by the way. He wasn't just making something up or bawling just to try to get attention. These were induced from the message that he had received and his love for God. It said he wept bitterly. Hezekiah wept bitterly. And some scholars would say <clears throat> that the use of this word actually means wail, to wail. Instead of wept would be a more accurate and <clears throat> term for the use of this word. And what does it mean when the Bible says that people wail? We've all heard about the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. We all know that the Wailing Wall takes its name from the traditional Arabic term for the wall, El Mabka, which means the place of weeping. Due to the sorrow that the Jews expressed over the loss of their temple, Jews stopped using the term Wailing Wall after the Six-Day War in 1967. Uh, once Jerusalem was once again under Israel's sovereignty, Jews took the official position that the Western Wall should be a place of general celebration instead of mourning. But what is wailing? What does it mean to wail? The dictionary says that wailing is making a prolonged, high-pitched sound. In his book, How to Bring Your Children to Christ and Keep Them There, Ray Comfort shares a tragic story from a friend who is named Mark Waters, who wrote about a very traumatic experience that happened to him some years ago. <clears throat> He tells his story, so please listen carefully. On April 7th, 2001, the unthinkable thing happened. It was a beautiful sunny day, and my wife and I were out in the backyard taking pictures with our son, Sam, who at that time was almost four, and our daughter, Delaney, who was 16 months old. After the hot Florida sun became unbearable, we went inside to cool off. I had been playing with Sam in the living room and I had assumed that Delaney was with my wife, Becky, in the bedroom. After a while, I called out, Is Delaney with you? I thought she was with you. Becky answered back. My blood ran cold. It had been too long not to have heard or seen her. I knew that she had become increasingly curious about the lake behind the house, so I instantly sprinted out the back door toward the lake. I came over the top of the hill, and I saw her. That vivid, horrible image will remain burned in my mind until the day I die. There was our sweet Delaney floating face down about 10 feet out from the shore. Oh my God, I yelled. Now breaking stride, I ran down the hill to the shore. With one bound, I reached her. Call an ambulance, I yelled again. I carried her to the, to the shore and laid her pale, limp body in the grass. Our neighbor, an ex-Marine, ran over and immediately began CPR on her. But I knew it was too late. I fell to the ground, and from the bottom of my soul, and with all the strength I had in me, I wailed. I don't know if you've ever actually wailed before, he says. I hadn't until that day. I had cried and I had wept. I would even say that I had agonized. But until that moment, I had never wailed. I can still hear it. 
how awful it sounded. I could write a hundred books and never adequately describe how I felt. I would only argue that this is the lowest point a human can reach during his lifetime. Once you reach that point, as you would imagine, you never look at anything in life the same way again. I'm a real bottom, bottom line type of guy, so let me tell you what my bottom line is now that I've experienced this as a part of my life. I have two sons now. My life's number one goal is to lead my sons to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What else is there? A hundred years from now, it won't matter whether they drove a tow truck or the space shuttle. They'll be dead just like Delaney. The only important question is, will they be with Delaney and Becky and me in heaven or will they be in hell? A hundred years from now, where will your kids be? Where will you be? Hezekiah's wailing was a result of what he saw. His nation in danger from the Assyrian army, which was then invading it and threatening to destroy the religion of the one true God. He was greatly affected at the news of his death as he wished to live to see the enemies of God overthrown. And therefore God promises that he will never, that he will deliver the city out of the hands of the king of Assyria and at the same time, he promises Hezekiah 15 more years of life. I mean, this is a great illustration and a great picture of what it meant to Hezekiah, the word of the Lord. This is a great picture to, to see a man totally overthrown in a fit of wailing over his God and over the decimation of his city. I don't remember the last time that I, I can never say I really wailed, but I'm just trying to think of it, take an inventory of my heart this morning and say, when is the last time you agonized and cried when we see the devastation of our country and the decimation of God's church and the things that happen today, the things that go on. When's the last time we've rent our hearts and cried out to God in a way that this man had wept bitterly for the Lord? I would say I'm guilty of this. And I would ask God for more conviction. And also I'd repent before the Lord and for all of you for not being more like this. Two promises that followed for Hezekiah was 15 more years and the overthrowing of the Assyrian army. God, faithful as always, kept his promise to protect Jerusalem. That night, as a matter of fact, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. The remaining Assyrians quickly broke camp, withdrew to abject defeat. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. The Bible says he took care of them on every side. This is our God. This is our Lord. 
He wants to take care of you on every side. Stop beating yourselves up relentlessly. The self-hate, the self-condemnation, constant failure, constant shame. Your life's almost become an embodiment of shame. It shouldn't be that way. Because Christ died for you. And he lives for you now, making intercession, not for the world, but for his people. For you, brothers and sisters. See, death lets us know that this life isn't all there is. And that we should not place too much stock in it. Don't get too comfortable here. Even the psalmist understood this as well. In Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, So teach us, Lord, to number our days, that we may gain a heart, what? Of wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 7, chapter, or verse 2, it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning or to a funeral than to go to a house of feasting and partying. For death is the destiny for, of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Another translation says, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. Party, 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 party. Life's one big happy party. And then we die. And this is what Hezekiah chose to do. He turned his face towards the wall. He prayed to the Lord. He sought the Lord. And the Lord heard him. And because Hezekiah did make God number one in his life, God did show him favor and mercy by adding 15 more years to his life. And getting our house in order must be the prime priority in all of our lives. Otherwise, we become, as what the Bible says, a rich fool. The parable of the rich fool says this, Christ speaking, Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Get your house in order. Add it in there. Then he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced an abundance. So he thought to himself, what shall I do since I have nowhere to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store up all my grain and all of my goods. This is a really good illustration of a hoarder. Then I'll say to myself, then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be required of you. Then who will own what you have accumulated? This is how it is. This is how it will be for anyone who stores up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God. Being rich towards God, ultimately at the end of the day, is getting our house in order. Now. Digging our, getting our lives where they need to be before God. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the ultimate illustration of perfection because He is God. He symbolizes the ultimate reality of what we should be like. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But Hezekiah was a sinful man like us. And God brought revival to his land. Even though he had a vile, wicked father. He still turned out good. 
And then God responds. Then we read in verse 4. And it happened when, <clears throat> before Isaiah had even gone out of the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return, tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of, your da of David your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears, and surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I'll add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God's response to Hezekiah was this, I heard your prayer. I heard it. Isn't such a beautiful feeling knowing that God hears your prayers? You know the most awfulest feeling is? It's awfulest, even a word. Sorry. It's thinking that God doesn't hear your prayers anymore. You ever been there where you think it doesn't matter because, because of my vileness, because of my wickedness, because of my sinfulness, that God doesn't even hear my prayers anymore? And sometimes we can become so defeated with despair that we think, why even bother? Why even bother? But I'll tell you this morning, God does hear your prayers, no matter where you're at. Just remember this. Just remember this. Take it to the bank. No matter what your situation is this morning, cry out to God because he will hear you and he will answer you. And then he says to Hezekiah, I have seen your tears. I have seen your tears. Interesting to note because this is really identifying with your pain. God is saying, oh yeah, you know, I heard your prayer. I'll answer it. Go on. I got other things to do. But God is being very technical here. He said, I have seen your tears. I have seen you cry. I've seen you in this way. But be a good cheer for my son, Jesus Christ, overcome the world. This life will be over soon, brothers and sisters. Very soon. Very soon. And we'll be in eternity with Christ. And then God says, I will heal you. Surely, he says, I will heal you. The Psalm 118, 17 says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of of the Lord. God heard his prayer. God had seen his tears. And God said, most certainly I will heal you. After Hezekiah's recovery, I'm going to leave you with this this morning. It's called the Song of Hezekiah. And this could be your song too. This could be your song too. He says this. I said in the prime of my life, must I grow? Must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord Himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those now who dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, and He has cut me off from the loom. Day and night, you made an end. You have made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion, he broke all my bones. Day and night, you made an end of me. I cried 
like a swift or thrush. I moaned like a morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened, Lord. Come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health, and you let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you. As I am doing today, as I am doing now, parents tell your children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and he will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us make sure our house is always prepared. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to proclaim your word. I pray it didn't fall on deaf ears, Lord, but I pray it was fruitful. I pray that you be glorified through it. I pray those today who have wandered or strayed from you, who feel as lost sheep, Lord, that their default this morning would not be to turn to some device or turn to some way to pacify themselves, but they would turn to you. And they would cry out, as the Bible says, they would pray, they would seek your face, and you would hear them. Because you have seen their tears, and you will heal them. Lord, I'm thanking you this morning for what you have done in our lives this morning, and what you're going to continually do. In Jesus' name.